Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Welcome to Science in Action from the BBC World Service with me, Roland Pease. Coming up shortly, where genetics meets racial identity meets controversy. We are not trying to present something that would reinforce that race and ethnicity are biologic. Race and ethnicity, let's just be clear, are social constructs. The harmful scent of a female? The mortality effect we found was actually quite striking. By the end of the experiment, half of the males who were allowed to mate and also exposed to odours had died. So 15 out of 30. And the continuing spread of dangerous, highly pathogenic bird flu, the H5N1 strain, which has now reached Antarctica. It's a prospect we first talked about 10 months ago when birds and seals were dying in large numbers in southern Chile. And then, as spring returned to the southern hemisphere, we heard about the first reports of infections in colonies on South Georgia, an island in the region but not the main continent. But it did seem like just a matter of time, as shown by the report this week by the Spanish National Research Council. Antonio Alcami is a virologist deployed by them to the research station on Deception Island near the Antarctic Peninsula, who received and tested the first samples. So we had a report from our colleagues in Primavera Station. It's an Argentinian station. And they found two schools in death. So we asked them whether they could bring the samples. We have a lab set up in the Spanish station and we managed to actually do the test here. And that's how we identified this case of schools. It's coming from the Argentinian station, really. That's on the Antarctic Peninsula, yeah, is it? Yeah, correct. This is about... 10 hours by sheep. And were these two birds, were they the only birds that they suspected or did they just bring you a subset of a larger number of birds? They actually took some samples from penguins in the proximity of the station but they didn't have any signs of infection but there are reports of other schools in other stations in the peninsula, in mainland, so they haven't been tested so far but we suspect that maybe is spreading in the schools at the moment. Are skewers colonial birds? Do they live in large colonies on the rocks, on the cliffs, or what? Well, they actually live around penguin colonies because they eat the carcasses of penguins, and they spread quite a lot. I don't think they live in in large colonies. Because what I'm trying to build up is a picture of what these two birds that you've examined might tell us about the bigger danger in the area. For example, you won't know how they picked up the virus, but it sounds like they could have picked it up from their scavenging. Yeah, that's one possibility. I mean, schools are migratory birds. They will come from South America, so they may have brought the virus themselves. That's one possibility. One hypothesis that people have been talking about is that a sick bird will not be able to make it here will not be able to fly so long across the ocean. And that's a physical barrier which I think is preventing the spread of the infection probably from from South America. So the other possibility is that they came with sea mammal, for example, infected. They are eating the carcasses of these infected animals and they become infected. But you're based at the moment where you are because of 
the Spanish concern about the way things are developing there? Well, it's an international concern. I think all the polar programs are connected. We've been working with Chile, Uruguay, Argentina, which are in the area. So all the programs are really monitoring this. The Spanish program, of course, they were concerned, especially because some groups are working on penguins, and we didn't want to work on infected penguins. So that was the reason. Other programs, they have actually cancelled some of the projects. I mean, we have spoken before to the British Antarctic Survey, and last week there were more reports of fairly widespread deaths of sea mammals as well as of birds on South Georgia. You're much closer to the mainland, and you're now seeing it actually on the mainland of Antarctica, which must be a big concern. Well, yeah, that's the, the different thing of our report, is that South Georgia, we, we knew this is clearly there, the virus, but as far as we know, it had not jumped to mainland Antarctica, and this will be the first report, so it, it is a concern. My personal view is that it's going to happen. We are lucky that it's happening late in the season. I've been monitoring a penguin colony, and everything is going fine. The chicks were growing, they're now adults, they are living the colony and so it's not going to affect this season but if next year the virus is already here then that may have a big, big impact. When we spoke to Ashley Benison from South Georgia they were having to send their samples back to the UK for detection. As mm-hmm. you, you've taken the appropriate equipment out with you, have you? Yeah. Yeah, this is what we have done, which is maybe unique here, is that we brought all the equipment needed to do the analysis here. So it is complex because normally a PCR test would be sufficient to make a diagnostic. But for avian flu, we need to do two PCR tests, one to confirm there is flu virus, a second one to confirm the subtype, H5. And if that's positive, then we need to sequence a little bit of the virus, which will tell us exactly whether this is the highly pathogenic virus. And that's what we have done here. Okay, we had equipment to do this in Antarctica. Normally, as you said, they had to take the sample back to the UK, but we are able to do this here, which is, I think, is, is, is very good because it gives us a, a very rapid response. And with the genetic information, will you be able to see exactly which source it was because i know that you know you can tell subtypes of these strains and the different routes that they've taken through south america for example we are at the minute as we speak sequencing the whole virus that sequence will tell us how different it is from the viruses were sequenced and identified in south america and that will be very interesting my prediction is that it's going to be almost the same virus coming here one reason i've been so concerned about it is that my image of birds on Antarctica are of these huge colonies Hmm. living very close to each other, they're very communal, and that's the conditions in which the virus can spread quite easily. Yeah, I fully agree. That was my concern as well, because if you work in these penguin colonies, I mean, they are mixed up all together, very, very close. The virus transmits by air and feces, so the virus will spread very, very easily in that situation and can cause very high mortality. We don't know exactly the mortality in these penguins, but uh, maybe in the order of 30% mortality, even higher. I mean, this is an exponential process. It can take a long time to start. One, you start, one individual infects five, and then another five, another five. So it can be nothing today and in a month, maybe disaster. 
we'll see how it evolves. At the moment, it seems to me that it's, it's going slowly, which is good news. And what's the seasonal behaviour of, for example, the penguins? Do they tend to sit out on the continent during the winter, which is coming up, and disperse during the summer for feeding, or is it, you know, something different? Well, I'm not a penguin <laughs> expert, I'm a biologist, <laughs> okay. Nor I'm a biologist but it, no, no, but this is a good question, because I ask this to the experts, and it's a bit surprising, they don't really know where they go, they generally stay in the continent, which means that if they are not infected now, they will be safe, probably until next summer. I would like to think that it may not be that bad in the winter, but if a few individuals keep it, they will bring the virus next season very early. Antonio Acalmi of the Spanish National Research Council on a line from their base in Antarctica. And now, a bit of a storm that has blown up around results around a massive government health and genetics database in the USA that was released last week in a series of papers published in Nature and other journals. The program is called All of Us, and it's a massive database collating health records, tissue samples and genome sequencing, a bit like the well-known UK Biobank. But it's trying to address biases in existing biobanks towards middle-class white European descendants. The storm concerned some plots in one of the papers mapping the genetic and ancestral diversity of participants, which critics said could fuel misconceptions around genes and race. But first, I wanted to hear from all of us CEO Josh Denny what the program was all about. The aim of all of us is to accelerate health research and medical breakthroughs, enabling individualized prevention, treatment and care for all of us. The United States is very diverse. Most of the genetics research, especially worldwide, has been largely from European populations. And we really wanted to start off with deliberate focus and relationship building, trust building, partnership with diverse participants across the United States. And and has this tendency to pick up participants from European backgrounds, that's a general problem. It's some kind of default, is it, somehow, the way these things have worked (laughs) in the past? Well, you know, underrepresented populations of biomedical research happen for many different reasons. Part of it is by race and ethnic reasons. But, you know, diversity is a bigger question than that. It's sexual minorities. It is lower educational attainment. Rural populations are less likely to be included as well. Some of it's accessibility, but you also have mistrust through history of science that has not been so equitable to different populations. And, you know, quite frankly, at times, science has even exploited populations. And so this was a really deliberate effort to go out, reach out to people. I'm just curious how you managed to get, so far, at least quarter of a million participants, half of whom I think are not European background. That's right. In fact, in terms of enrollment, we have even more. Nearly 770,000 participants have consented to join the study. It comes through a network of community engagement across the country. We've had participants that have been part of all of our leadership committees from the very beginning and really sought to listen. And a lot of what we heard was, it's great to return results and value, but what we're really looking forward is how do you produce science and medicines, better healthcare prevention, screening, all that stuff for our populations, because we do feel like we've been left out. And so this suite of papers you've just released are firstly a kind of celebration of the fact that you've come so far, but also a demonstration that by going after diversity, you really are uncovering a lot more than we've seen before. 
That's right. The landmark genomics paper here, just showing the data that we've collected in this nearly 250,000 participant release from whole genomes, seeing more than a billion genetic variants observed, 275 million of which have never been seen before, I think really attests to the diversity of our program. And we are seeing that our ability to interpret genetic variants for diverse populations and determine which ones you know, actually have meaningful influence on disease is quite variable. And so it must have been quite a big thing when you published these papers. But a lot of the commentary, which must be a disappointment to you, has been <laughs> on this one or this pair of figures in the paper that are a way of displaying the genetic data in a simple form, but correlating it with ethnic diversity. Was this figure central to the point of the paper, or was it just trying to illustrate the kind of reach you were getting? You know, it was not central to the point of the paper. We were trying to show, in fact, quite maybe the opposite of what some of the concern has been. What, what the plot shows is the diversity of our genetic data and the diversity of the population, and, and trying to make the point, actually, that the complexity is, is beyond those labels. So these UMAP plots, as they're called, are what all the fuss is about. I confess they are eye-catching, but hard to comprehend for an outsider like me. The kind of data presentation that I skip over rather than dwell on ignorantly. But according to geneticist Ewan Burney, Deputy Director of the European Molecular Biology Labs and one of the critical commentators, these kinds of plots attempt to represent key aspects of thousands of massively complex genomes on a two-dimensional graph. How do you get a very high-dimensional space, so a space with maybe, in this case, in genetics, 300,000 dimensions? And how do I kind of squash this down onto two dimensions? And obviously, if you've got 300,000 dimensions, you want to put it onto two dimensions, you are going to make some compromises. So you have to decide programmatically how you're going to compromise. This is some kind of silhouette, as it were, casting a shadow of all the complexities of quarter of a million people with their large genomes and trying to make some pattern out of it. Yes. So very quickly, our relationships with other people when we look at genomes, they're sort of family trees, but they're these rather strange family trees. And it's the way I think about it is it's 300,000 different family trees. And we want to represent those family trees now in two dimensions where each spot is a person. We just don't have the space. We don't have the colours and the space and the dimensions to do it. The way the authors have used UMAP here is basically they've said that we're really interested in very close relatives. So first cousins, second cousins, and make sure you put points together when they are very close relatives. And then just for everything else, just try and fit it onto two dimensions. And the actual layout is very, very arbitrary. You can change it completely arbitrarily to make basically good looking pictures. And then these dots are color coded according to whether in US terminology, they are Asian or black or African-American, Middle Eastern, white, European and so on. And so you're getting these sort of patches of color on this sort of scatter graph. That's right. The colour represents, in the US census, they get asked this question, are you African-American? Are you European-American? Are you Asian? And people tick the boxes. 
And so by seeing these blobs of colours, you're saying that when people tick those boxes, their third or fourth cousins usually tick the same box as they do. So basically how you should read these things is I've got a lot of data and it's got some complicated relationships. And the UMAP method, by definition, prioritizes the very closest relationships. And that seems to be the the important message I'm getting. Now, a feeling from the nature of the rest of the paper is that what they're trying to emphasize in these diagrams is that they have succeeded in being extremely diverse in the way that they've selected people, that only half of the participants are European and they've got lots of other diversity within there. But the counterclaim is that it looks like there's some kind of genetic justification to racial description. So have I got that right? You're you're absolutely right. So they're very proud and, and quite rightly that they've managed to recruit people from many diverse backgrounds. And actually, I'm really proud of the way they've done aspects of the income diversity and the rural versus urban diversity, as well as this race and ethnicity diversity. So they've really explored many axes here. I think there's been a misstep here in that some people can take this figure and it bolsters some beliefs about the way race or ethnicity really is a sort of profound grouping of people, that ethnicity is somehow very aligned with genetics, when in fact that's not the case. The terms we use is linked to genetics around the visible features like skin colour, but really isn't anywhere else in the genome. We are not trying to present something that would reinforce that race and ethnicity are biologic. Race and ethnicity, let's just be clear, are social constructs, and it is often conflated with genetic ancestry or genetic similarity. But those topics are far more complex than what we could ever show in a simple plot. But that being said, I appreciate the criticism, and I think it's an opportunity for us to learn and certainly move forward and be more thoughtful in the future and how we can reflect our images to explain our data sets. I'm just interested that you use that phrase, social construct, because in a sense, in going for diversity, it's going for people who are often in the margins of society and so on. So in a strange way, this is sort of at the heart of the work that you do, but it's then conflated with this genetics. That's right. And collecting self-identified race and ethnic information is still important. We are not just a genomic study. There are all sorts of other kinds of population health, health services research, access to care, health disparity and health equity that are beyond genetics. Even research that could be around the health impacts of discrimination. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact in, in light of genetics that part of the importance of this information is to help us think about the multiplicity of factors that influence someone's health. And that is very separate from how we should do genetics research. Race and ethnicity are not the complexity of genetic research. These plots are now in the public domain. They're published. There's no sort of withdrawing them or anything like that. Is there anything you would be able to do, though, in terms of trying to limit the ability of some people to abuse those images to make points about race that you just don't believe in? Clearly, I think 
going back, hearing how this was received, many of us would have seen this in a different light and maybe done something differently. Uh, and we are in conversation with nature now about what we you know, might do in terms of potential revisions or commentaries that we can do in this step. And we have a real opportunity to make a difference here. And it's not always going to be easy. And we're going to make some mistakes along the way. We want to continue to listen to our population and improve. Hopefully, this will be a nidus to move the whole field forward. I mean, I guess in a fast-moving field like this, there's a continual learning process that goes on. There is. We are learning, and I think this is an important step in this. You know, when a researcher comes on board with our program, there is a set of training that they do. Um, part of that is on helping people see things that they may unintentionally do that could be used for stigmatizing work. Clearly, the researchers were not intending to certainly produce anything that would be stigmatizing, but it's it's still an education piece. It certainly highlights why we may want to think of other kinds of ways of displaying this kind of information in the future. And I'm hopeful that we can be part of that conversation to move the field forward. Meanwhile, this is, I guess, essentially the second chapter of the whole project. You're pretty confident that as you continue to explore the genomes, that you're going to make some important breakthroughs, do you think, in people's health? I do. I think we will make breakthroughs in health. We've already seen reports on genetic studies in diverse populations that are helping us classify genetic variants in genes and genetic ancestries that haven't been able to be studied before. For instance, a gene called Titan can put us at risk for cardiac diseases. And there really uh, hasn't been a ton of evidence on this in African ancestry populations and a paper published recently on that. These are examples of kinds of studies that can't be done outside of a resource like ours. Josh Denny of the U.S. National Institutes of Health and CEO of All of Us. Thanks to, to Ewan Burney of EMBL for his comments. To finish, who knew a simple smell could be deadly or at least life-shortening? The scent of a female, no less. It's in mice, not us. And I have heard previously how scent molecules in their urine can alter the behaviour and physiology of other mice. A matriarch, for example, can control the fertility of other young females in a nest. But the story about old males that mouseologist Mike Garrett had to tell me was something else. So in this study, we found that if you expose male mice to soiled bedding from females over a large period of their life, then when you allow them to reproduce later in life, they're less fertile. And also, as males are exposed to female odours, they actually have an increased mortality rate. I'm just going to have to unpick this. So the smell of a female mouse reduces both their fertility and makes them more likely to die. In the long term, yeah. So it may be driving some changes in these males early in life that might actually help them be fertile, maybe help them compete with other males if they know that females are around. But a negative consequence of that is that it can increase their mortality. The mortality rate we've effect we found was actually quite striking. By the end of the experiment, half of the males who were allowed to mate and also exposed to odours had died, so 15 out of 30, whereas only 4 out of 30 had died in the environment who were just allowed to mate. I mean, sort of put that way, it makes slightly more sense to me. So mice are famously phenomenal breeders, and so I guess that is it a case that if they smell that there are female mice around and 
they've got the chance to breed, that they abandon looking after themselves, roughly speaking, something like that. Yeah, roughly speaking, yeah. But it's worth, I think, just dwelling on this. It, this isn't actually the act of mating. It's not that they were living fast, dying young. It's that there's some kind of triggers that changes their physiology, you think, that then may have other consequences. Exactly. In previous studies, I've found that if you take male mice and you expose them to female odours, they show spikes in kind of energy expenditure. Presumably, it's doing something to them that if they were allowed to mate with females, it would be beneficial for them. It would enhance their fitness in some way. And so in this study, presumably, they will have shown these spikes in energy expenditure that if had actually been matched with a female may be beneficial. But over years, that has a negative effect. So it could possibly be a consequence of kind of a mismatch of sexual perception of a particular female but not actually being able to mate with that female some kind of potential sexual frustration as it were they're running around saying where is she where is she yeah it's, it's plausible that that might be what drives some of these effects how do mice live in the wild i have some recollection that they tend to live socially but that might just be the females well so males will defend territories and those territories can vary quite dramatically in their size so they have quite a flexible mating system and sort of reproductive ecology and like if you're exposed to lots of female cues it might help to drive some changes that are beneficial when you perceive lots of females are in your environment interestingly if you go out and catch a wild mouse and you you bring it into the lab and then you study its lifespan the wild derived mice actually live a lot longer than the lab mice and that's presumably because when people domesticated mice and developed these different lab strains there was selection within the laboratory for those animals that became sexually mature really quickly and reproduced a lot. So those ones who passed on their offspring sort of carried on that lab strain generation, whereas the wild-derived mice do not reproduce as fast. So there's actually something that does kind of keep a check on how fertile a mouse is in the wild, and presumably to, you know have benefits for them in the longer term of their life cycle. I mean, we've been talking very much about the male mice. What about the female mice? Does it go the other way? We did a study looking at short-term effects on metabolism, and we found that female mice exposed to male odours won't show the same metabolic changes that males will show in response to female odours. However, in this paper we published, I think it was actually at the end of 2022, we showed that if you take female mice and expose them to female odours during development, they become sexually mature later. But a consequence of that is that they live longer. How widely do you think this can be generalised? You're talking about very specific and small and highly reproductive animals. Is this going to be restricted to just those kinds of species? Yeah, I think it would be applicable to other animals. I mean, we can see there are other animals who show this effect in terms of invertebrates. Mice are really uh, are a great model for this because olfaction is so important for them. You know, if you take an animal like a human, for example, our reproductive strategy is so much more complicated. And I don't think you'd be expecting to see effects in those kind of species. Phew! Mike Garrett is a zoologist at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And those studies, which must have taken a lot of patience, were published this week by the Royal Society in London. The producer of Science in Action from the BBC this week was Ella Hubber. I'm Roland Pease and we're on the scent of some more good stories for next week.